The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Hi, this is Setting the Record Straight. My name is Russell Trawick. I'm the pastor of Christ Covenant Church in Alvin, Texas. This is my first podcast, uh, hopefully of many to come. In today's podcast, I'm going to touch on a pretty tough issue uh, from recent uh, history. And the title of this podcast today is American Christianity is responsible for the attacks in Orlando. Now, I know that is a a hard thing to hear, but let me start this podcast off with this statement regarding the title. Today, I am not advocating that the church, the bride of Christ, is responsible for the pulling of the trigger, trigger on these people. It is the act of a sinful person or persons They are to be judged rightly by God's civil magistrate as ministers of his justice, and the individual or individuals involved will be judged rightly by God. I am not seeking to denigrate the body or the bride of Christ in any way. I take great concern in doing so because just as I would not allow someone to speak about my wife in any evil way, I know Christ will not take kindly to anyone doing so to his. Also, this podcast is not entitled in this way just for the sake of clickbait. I've set this as a title because what is called Christianity in America has significant flaws to the point that it, in most cases, American Christianity could be called apostate to its core. However, American Christianity is responsible for the nightclub attacks in Orlando at the gay bar. That's right, I said it. In fact, I would say American churchianity is responsible in several, several ways. First, American churchianity has sought to be loved by the world more than it loves God. God's word says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's found in John 15, verses 18 and 19. This is the problem. Most Christians actually believe the world hates them because they are followers of Christ. But that is nowhere near the reason as to why non-believers have a hatred toward American Christianity. The reason for the hatred is not because of their claim to belong to Christ, but because the lost world cannot see any difference between American Christians and any other religion. You could say that it is because of humanism, uh, because of the humanism that is the basis of education in government-run schools, but I believe there is much more to it. American Christians have sought to find common ground between the Christian the Muslim, the LBTQ crowd, and yes, even the atheists for so long in order to be accepted by the world. Some, like Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church, go unchecked for so uh, unchecked without accountability and then go as far as to say that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. 
He uses pagan belief to find common ground in order to tell them about Jesus. This is not only presuppositionally wrong according to Scripture, but God's Word also tells us that we are to be different. We are to be separate. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Scripture commands us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anything, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's what John, 1 John 2.15 tells us. I am not saying we are not to love our neighbor, but we are to desire, we are not to desire to be loved by this world. Secondly, American Christianity is responsible because it's more American that it is biblically Christian. I wrote recently that American churches represent nothing more than American statism. Christian statists complain about taxes. They complain about government overstep. They complain about wars. Or on the other side of the coin, they want to make the sand glow. They complain about liberties, including Christian liberties being lost. Why do they even bother? Why do they wonder why God doesn't answer them or relieve the suffering for them and this nation? Could it be that God refuses to share worship with the idolatrous allegiance they have made to their country? Could it be that they adore and honor a flag more than they do in knowing God, obeying His word, and making Him known? God warned the Israelites in 1 Samuel 8, verses 11-18. He said, These will be be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. They wrap themselves in their flag. And they bow down their knee to the Moloch of this land, giving up all identity in Christ to be first and foremost an American, offering the blood of their children on the altar of war, false patriotism, and service to their earthly king. This starts from a tender young age going to kindergarten. I know of a church that stands even at the beginning of every worship service and pays homage to their king by pledging allegiance to the God of country and then they proceed to worship the one true God. They do so 
ignoring God's commands that you are to have no other gods before me, as Exodus 20, verse 3 tells us. They ignore the God that exhorts them, saying, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Out of Deuteronomy 6, verses 13 through 15. This leads us to the last reason for, for responsibility of American Christians, or American Christianity, I should say, for the tragedy in Orlando. Thirdly, American Christians or American Christianity is responsible because they are antinomian when it comes to the law of God. In the circles I travel, the word antinomian is well understood, but for the sake of those who are not familiar, this word means anti, which means against, nomos, which means law. American Christianity is against God's law. Because of my bivocational employment, I am in the homes of both professed believers and non-believers alike every day. When it comes to those who profess Christ, I often hear the statement, I am under grace and not the law. I've heard it said that the, the law is a slave master and grace is our freedom. My conversationally, conversation usually goes with people like this. I ask them, what is grace? Their answer, the unmerited favor of God. Then I asked them, well, why do you need grace? They obviously, uh, most of the time they'll respond because I'm a sinner. Then I ask them, how do you know you're a sinner? They'll always answer, because the Bible tells me so. Uh, and I usually say something like this, yes, but where, what and where specifically... There's usually no response. And then I ask, have you read the book of Romans? They'll usually answer yes. Then I go on from there to share with them Romans chapter 3 and 7. Specifically, let me share with you a little bit this morning or today in this broadcast. Romans 3 verses 19 through 20, then 27 through, 21, through, 27 through 31 which says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Then what becomes of our boasting, it says, in starting in verse 27? It is excluded. But what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overturn the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What we find here simply is this. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's how we know we are a sinner. And we don't try to overthrow the law by this faith that we have, but rather we uphold it. 
Paul goes on in Romans 7, verses 7-12, through he says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came and alive, came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is not something that has killed us. Sin has killed us. The law points us and give to our sin and gives us a knowledge of our sin. Well, I had a man the other day say to me, well, obedience to the law was the Old Testament, but we're under the grace of the New Testament. We're not responsible to obey, but love God. Now, I know the lunacy of that statement, but this is the reality of what antinomianism is like in American Christianity. This is what being taught in classrooms and proclaimed from pul- this is what is taught and proclaimed from pulpits and churches today. This man was confident in what he said. I asked him if he had ever read 1 John 2 verses 1 through 6 or 1 John 5 and he said he was sure he had. I instructed him to read it while I, while I finished up a few things and then I would come back to the conversation. Well, 1 John 2, verses 1-6 through 6 says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Then going on to 1 John 5 verses 1 through 3, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. I returned to the man and asked, What do you think? He was befuddled. He didn't know what to say. He was at a place of confusion between what he has been taught for over 40 years and God's Word. Specifically, he struggled with what he just learned about God's law. The law of God is this. It is threefold. The law drives a sinner to the truth in Jesus Christ alone. The law provides a standard, secondly, for the believer by which he may judge his sanctification and how he might think in all matters of life. Thirdly, the law allows a standard by which we may maintain order in society, restraining and arresting evil. Without the law of God, all we have left is lawlessness. 
The law leads us to Christ. It sustains us and guides us in all things. R.J. Rushduni in the Institutes of Biblical Law in his first volume wrote, To attempt to study Scripture without studying its law is to deny it. So to attempt to study Scripture and to deny the law of God is to deny all of Scripture. I think it's important for us to understand that the opposite of the law is not grace. It is lawlessness. Rushton, he went on to say, lawless Christianity is a contradiction in terms. It is anti-Christian. If the churches are lax with respect to the law, will not people follow suit? We are told in Scripture that the summary of the law is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is found in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. If most churches in the American Christianity that we have today already bow the knee to the Moloch, the Baal of state, and pledge allegiance to another god, and have broken the first table of the law, why would we expect anyone to uphold the second table? If we don't love God with all that we are, and any, without any form of division, how can we love God? Our neighbor. The reason why a man or men can walk into a gay bar and open fire of them is because that person, in their wickedness and unrighteousness, suppressed the truth that is plainly seen regarding God, that all mankind is made in the image of God, as Romans 1 tells us. It is the same reason that a self professing believer. Even a so-called pastor can drop their child, their fellow churchgoer, or bring themselves to an abortion mill to murder the image bearer of God in the womb. When a person is lawless against the first table of God's law, it will reveal itself through the desecration of the second table of the law. I believe it was Greg Bonson that said, The culture is the church externalized. This is why the antinomian American Christian finds it acceptable to lock their parents away in a nursing home never to visit them. This is why they find it acceptable to stand by and do nothing to abolish murder through abortion of our most precious and defenseless neighbors. This is why they find it acceptable to be filled with all types of sexual immorality, much less adulterate our relationship with our bridegroom by whoring after other gods, whether outright paganism or through cloaking themselves in the flag of their statist ideologies. This is why they find it not only acceptable to steal from others through taxation and arbitrary laws, but also they proclaim it it is a civic duty of the Christian to take such brutality because of their unbiblical submission to governing authorities. They find it acceptable to tear down the reputation of others and slander other image bearers of God to the point of hatred that refuses to preach the gospel or offer aid to whom? The homosexual, the Muslim, or even the illegal alien. They find it acceptable to not be content with their lot and instead of being good stewards of God's resources and implementing their revenue and building the kingdom of God, they instead, and they instead build many kingdoms to the God of self 
never wanting their neighbor's God to ever become greater than their own. This is why it's so easy for me to say that American Christianity, which is really not Christian at all or biblically founded in any way, that's why I can say that American Christianity is responsible for what happened in Orlando. The evidence of antinomianism is that American Christianity doesn't respond to this tragedy of lawlessness with condemnation of the evildoer and love for our neighbor, regardless of our neighbor's sin, but make it a gun rights issue or an issue of anti-Muslim sentiment and terrorist attack and so on and so on. Instead of using the opportunity to preach the gospel and be salt and light to the world as Matthew 5 tells us, they cling to their status ideologies and party propaganda. There are pastors that say the victims of this attack, attack received their due punishment. Really? They deserve to be murdered? It is one thing to acknowledge the judgment of God upon a nation through storms and drought and financial implosion and even wars. But to say that God uses murder... That which is against his nature, that which is against his culture, I'm sorry, his character, and his very law to bring about his judgment is not only antinomian, but I believe outright heresy. What then do we do regarding this claim that I've made that American Christianity is responsible for the attack in Orlando? See, I was challenged to not only give criticism, but a path out of this muck and this mire. The answer is both simple and complex. It might not seem very profound, but it is in its application. The answer is perseverance. Perseverance of what? Of whom? Well, this podcast is about setting the record straight from the pulpit to the pew. Perseverance starts in the pulpit. I remember back about 12 years ago, I came to what is now called Christ Covenant Church. Originally, we were a Southern Baptist church. About ten and a half months in, there came a petition for my removal. This was no surprise since I was the fourth pastor in about five to six years. When it came to the church, I had a single intention to pastor one church for all of my ministry. I met my accusers then head on. I had been accused at one point in time of being respect, disrespectful to the senior adults in the church because I had given an illustration calling senior adults priceless antiques. Obviously this person did not look at under an understanding of the word priceless or antiques. And at another point I had one of my deacons criticize me for being too negative in my sermons and asked when I would stop preaching on the subject at hand. The sermon series was on the Great Commission, found in Matthew 28, 18-20. And I said I would stop preaching on it when I saw the church doing it. 
I vowed from the pulpit to my congregation to preach each sermon as if it would be my last one. Not because I was waiting for an opportunity to leave, but rather I would preach, I would leave everything on the table in my preaching no matter how controversial and no matter where it brought the church, I would preach the whole counsel of God by the Holy Spirit unashamedly. This is where the struggle comes in for so many pastors. They are afraid of the outcome of preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God's Word. The church finances, their next paycheck, their approval, and so on. Those are all things that come to their mind. They are more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. They are more concerned about honoring men than what honors and pleases and glorifies God. Pastors and pulpits have to be patient and must be willing to endure over time in order to have a lasting effect. If the church they pastor is antinomian, they they must preach on the law of God. If the worldview of the church is unbiblical, then they must preach and apply the whole counsel of God's word to every aspect of life. Paul told Timothy, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The work... Endurance and perseverance necessary require, in most cases, years, and the effects are noticeable. You will not always have the largest congregations, but you will have a congregation and one faithful to the Lord in His kingdom. Now I need to switch to the other side of the coin of perseverance here, and that is the pew. I hear so many people exclaim that they cannot find a church that fits what they believe whether it be a Christian Reconstructionist congregation or not, fully Calvinistic or not, post-millennial or not, the most important thing the pew needs to be reminded of is not to be so quick to dust off your sandals, but rather persevere. Men and women of God, what churches need is people willing to push the antithesis and push it often. I want you to remember what I said a few moments ago regarding pastors. I'm even reminded of a friend regarding this topic about a week ago, that pastors can be some of the loneliest people in the world. They have a few friends, if any at all, in their congregations. Building relationships makes them more vulnerable than anyone else in the congregation. I know for a fact because I've been burned in almost every relationship I've had. Some pastors have struggles in their congregations and preaching the whole counsel of God, not from a lack of desire, but fear of the outcome. What these pastors need is not criticism from a distance, 
but they need people who will spur them on. They need people who are willing to persevere through the trials of ministry and building the kingdom with them. They need people who will challenge them, encourage them, back them, and give them biblical criticism when necessary. I don't believe we can see effective change within a congregation without people within, a, uh, within that congregation who are willing to persevere. That means enduring music sometimes you don't like, and preaching that sometimes can seem outright horrible. It means challenging the teaching ministry by bringing questions and books and writings to the table that no one has ever heard of or even read. I say that churches today need congregants that will persevere and push the antithesis to the point that things change or they're asked to leave. See, American Christianity is responsible for what happened during Orlando. Firstly, because those churches, yes, they desire to be loved by the world more than to love God and be obedient to His Word. Secondly, it's because they are idolatrous in their worship of the state, being more American than they are Christian. And thirdly, it's because they're antinomian, standing against God's law word. But that does not mean that Christianity in America is hopeless. There is hope through the perseverance of the Lord's saints. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Christ Covenant Church went from being a Southern Baptist, dispensational, premillennial, Arminian, antinomian, congregational-led, cradle-Baptist church to a Reformed Christian Reconstructionist congregation that is post-millennial, Calvinistic, honors and applies God's law word that is elder-led, and holds a consistent covenantal view of baptism and communion. It took 12 years, a huge amount of patience, time and study and conversations, consistent and persistent preaching and teaching, sacrifices financially and so on. I believe we are finally at a place to begin building on after 12 years. You see, we're not done. We are just beginning. Christianity in America is not hopeless either. It is just in its infancy. And what we need is believers from the pulpit to the pew to persevere for the sake of the kingdom of God. And when those who claim to be Christian, those who claim to be followers of Christ, deviate and love the world, more than they love and obey God. When those who claim to be Christian wrap themselves in the flag of their Moloch state rather than wrapping themselves in the words of God's word. When those people turn against God's law and seek to make their own, what we need to do is not only endure with great patience, but we need to call them to the standard of God's word. We need to persevere as long as it takes. May God bless you and yours. And may you persevere alongside other believers in your church, in your state, across this nation, 
and across this world. God bless. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.